Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Elb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Thank you, Kate McAndrew, for the introduction to our guest today, Tyler Mincy, partner at Bolt VC. Bolt invests at the intersection of the digital and physical world. Tyler started his career on the iPod team at Apple, focusing on the shuffle, classic, nano, and touch. I actually don't know when I last heard those product lines, to be honest. What I loved about our conversation and what you'll learn is Tyler's deep love and appreciation for hardware tech-enabled products. A lot of VCs want to focus on software, but Tyler certainly spends a lot of time looking at physical products that can change our world, which I really, really appreciate. Um, I absolutely love this conversation. Without further ado, here's Tyler. Tyler, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. So let's start from the very beginning. What was your initial attraction to engineering? So my journey to engineering, I think, was a long one. But I feel like I always knew that I wanted to do, even when I didn't know the you know the name of it. I think uh, so. I think like I, I have all the like the little kid Lego stories and things like that. Um, but I think I've, I've always just had a general interest in how things work. I you know would take apart old appliances we we had around the house and and just um, enjoyed looking at the guts of things and understanding how products work, both kind of at a hardware level and a software level. Our first computer that we had at home was a Mac Plus that I got from my grandpa, actually, who was super into genealogy and he had the computer so he could get online and kind of exchange notes with other people and he was like the first person I knew that had an email address and and things like that so that was super interesting and I you know stumbled into like hypercard you know uh, and was one of of those people just really like digging into all of the the scripts and and building little games inside inside hypercard when I was a kid just by myself so that was really my like first foray into understanding how software engineering worked super exciting you know super exciting stuff there at the time and totally just uh, you know self-taught uh, self-discovery um, really really fun I miss a little bit of that um, uh, some of that like toy computing uh, these days but there's lots of great stuff out there like that I also did this crazy this program that uh, I mean it's, it's a worldwide thing called Odyssey of the Mind that some people may, may know about too it's a creative problem solving competition when I was in middle school high school too so that's like where I first learned to weld and design some mechanisms like we did a bunch of these like uh, competitions where we were building little vehicles and things like that and um, our coach was one of my friend's dads and he built race cars and sailboats in his in his garage so we would unplug their dryer from the you know 240 volt outlet plug in the arc welder and go, go start like putting metal together in the garage which is which is super fun so i have a lot of those kind of experiences that were you know grab bags from friends and family and and sort of early early job experiences that really um you know taught me to love engineering so it really didn't matter if it was uh, mechanical or something physical or software. You were just kind of into building on whatever medium it was. 
Totally. I also really got into doing some digital video editing and ended up interning when I was in high school at this TV production studio. And then they had a bunch of like broken camera controllers, like Zoom controllers and things like that in the back. And so I like like took them apart. And that's how I learned how to solder. I was like making, you know, patch cables for the production studio and fixing some old camera control equipment too. So um, you kind of just pick up those little bits and pieces of, of things whenever you're trying to do a project. You kind of inevitably start shaving yaks and adding new skills to your keychain. No, totally. I remember I played in a couple bands in college and like the first time where I soldered was actually just like fixing my guitar and kind of learning like the ins and outs of it. So uh, totally get you there in terms of just being like a tinker. Yeah. And I love that. Like, I think we'll probably end up talking about this later on. Um, I come from a very interdisciplinary background and I love people that come from that background as well, too. Like when you do that stuff, not just soldering from a like professional kind of vocational standpoint, but like when you're doing it for music and you do some like weird stuff and then that sounds like, oh, you that was like a really like I, I kind of messed up, you know, that solder. But like, listen to how it sounds like that stuff is, is really interesting when you kind of find things that are relevant from your other piece of experience um, that maybe even seem like a mistake. You're doing it wrong, but you kind of approach things with some fresh eyes. There's always cool ideas in that. It's funny because I remember listening to, I think a piano player who was playing with Miles Davis, who's like a very famous jazz musician. And he was saying how he struck a wrong note, like a wrong note in like it. And like Miles like looked at him and like during a performance and Miles just played then something completely different. And then afterwards, Miles was like, there is no wrong note that you can play. It's just like figuring out like what comes next after it happens, which I thought was kind of, I think that still is kind of like the voice of what you're kind of saying with soldering and stuff. So that's cool. So how did you end up working at Apple? I was a teaching assistant at Stanford in this graduate level um, design program in the smart product design lab. So there was kind of a program that was for engineers, mechanical engineers, computer science engineers that was really cross-functional and taught people embedded systems. They would do everything from mechanism design to board level electrical design to firmware development and really think about how all those things come together at a product level. Another TA that came before me in that class um, was actually started working at Apple in the iPod group you know, tell me some stories um, about what they're working on at a high level, can get into the details. But he spoke with such passion about the work that they were doing inside that company that roundabout way, I eventually got, uh, ended up getting recruited into that same group. Um, and so that was my kind of, it was really just a, a personal connection and really um, drafting off of passion, the fire I could see in, in some people's eyes that were in that in the group at the time. So I joined in 2006. I was there from 2006 to 2011. I worked in the iPod group, which was like wink, nudge, nudge, also the iPhone group at the time, but nobody could talk about it. There was actually a period of time where my direct manager didn't actually know what I was working on. He just knew he was like supposed to make sure I wasn't unhappy and would approve expense reports and things like that too. So um, it was definitely very, um, you know, black ops at the, at the time. So working there at the time, it was hard to describe how small the team was. And, and obviously the, the impact they had was amazing because it was really acting like a startup inside the larger uh, company. We were just a hundred and something people. I, I, we still, like I got up in a conference room and introduced myself when I started. And, and that's really how, how small the group was at the time. So totally special um, to be there. When you were first started working on the iPhone, maybe not knowing, or obviously you can like talk about that as an iPhone. Did you think that it would blow up quite the way that it did and have quite the impact the way it has? It's still, I mean, the, the scale that it's, it's blown up and the impact it's had was, was is probably, it still just was a little bit unimaginable at the time. Um, but it was really clear that these different pieces of DNA that had been coming together for a long time were really created, were creating something special at the time. So everybody knew, I mean, you know, across the company, it was almost like every person in every position was almost taking a step down in their, um, you know, managerial responsibilities, rolling up their sleeves and, and maybe doing stuff that they had done five, 10 years before in their career because it was 
was all hands on deck to ship to get this one thing out. Every every single aspect of the company was all like weight behind this one product. And I think that was how it was approached from a, a priority perspective. And and uh, it was I think really clear that something special was happening. You know, a couple of those you know meetings close to when the product was shipping, and definitely one of my highest level takeaways from working at that company still too is the how much the extra level of attention to, to detail that the you know product designers and product developers are putting into the product, how much those are little love letters to your users. That's something we heard you know over and over again. And when there were you know times were hard and people weren't seeing friends and family as much as they like, that was definitely um, you know something folks really latched onto. And Steve was telling us that we you know he reminded us of the original um, Mac team and that more people in the company would be working on this class of device than than anything else in the future, which seemed very hard to believe at the time. But I mean, he totally called a shot. Wow. Yeah. So what was it like just kind of like the day-to-day work with C jobs and really like that experience? The teams as a whole were, you know, very interdisciplinary and, and deeply integrated. Everything we did was absolutely driven by design and the user experience that we're trying to develop. Everything started from there. Um, and then we asked, how can it be done? And when we really latched onto um, a truly special experience, we um, had the kind of belief and conviction to move mountains to make it happen too. So I think that was always the approach. The crazy thing is after you do that a couple of times, it really develops a, a belief that that you can make it happen. So some of the things like mass producing a multi-touch screen had, had never been done before. Um, and you know, across the board from like, what is the industrial design? for that look like how what are the software ui interaction paradigm how in the world we're going to manufacture this thing um those were all you know very open questions but when some of that experience really started to gel everyone just knew we you know had to make it happen so on the you know technology and and manufacturing side we were literally going to the supply chain all over the world to try to figure out how to make that product happen so we were talking to um lcd manufacturers that knew how to do thin film lithography um to make the the touch sensors work really well well, but then those things all needed to get uh, assembled into this full stack with a display and a cover glass. And so we were talking to people that were doing watch face uh, lamination or lamination for automotive uh, windshields. And then we needed very durable glass. So we were talking to everyone in the world that made glass and like that we found corning, like but it was literally finding like who makes the best glass in the world. And then how do we you know produce that with a specific design at, at massive scale? And so we were really placing, you know, putting together components of different technologies and materials materials and manufacturing processes with the best people in the world that were good at that um, and trying to make that all come together in the product. That's amazing. Just figuring out what the actual best inputs are to actually make the product come to life, obviously like change the world in so many ways. And as well as, you know, looking at like what that global supply chain and what that looks like. What were some of the learnings from Apple as it relates to startups since Apple is such a massive company? I mean, now they're the biggest company in the world. Even at your time, obviously they were such a big company, yet they're still always so innovative in terms of every product that they put out. But what were some of your lessons learned through Apple working there and as it kind of shifts as well in terms of how do you think about startups? It really made me appreciate how long the time scale is to truly innovate. And, and that's almost the, like the, I think the misnomer of the word is it sounds like an invention, like something that was like a light bulb moment in somebody's head and they just, they did it pretty quickly and, and it was all about the idea. Really innovation that like happens on a pretty long arc that requires you to have a vision for the future and understand how to you know make the building blocks um, evolve to get you to get you there. I think it was actually funny when the iPhone came out. I think it was on the cover of Time Magazine 
magazine and said invention of the year. Like it, like it was just like something that, that came, you know, that people thought of for the first time, but really all of the underlying technologies, the, the miniaturization that made the product work and, and the power efficiency were things that, you know, were happening over, over 10 years of development with the iPods. Um, multi-touch screens were things that, you know, had been being developed out of uh, university research labs. And there was a couple other uh, startups that actually acquired that rolled into, um, you know, some of the hardware and software that were developed for that. Everything that was happening on the cellular technology uh, kind of end of the spectrum, flash memory, like there were all of these um, kind of bits of DNA that had been developing for a decade to make the, that all came together for, to make the iPhone happen. And so innovation is really picking out, like understanding those long developmental threads and really timing things when th- when they're intersecting at the right point and packaging those together in experiences and, and products that are really transformative. But, um, but I think appreciating that and spending a lot of time looking at those trends and understanding where they're intersecting is really what innovation is, not necessarily just like sitting in the studio and like with your sketchbook. That's part of it. But I think it's it's really, really an appreciation for how long innovation takes. How do you know when maybe some of these threads might be actually coming together and actually maybe that the timing's right in terms of actually think about innovation, if that makes sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. It's kind of hard to say. Like, you know, I think the most important thing is that you're looking at both a combination of capabilities and technology trends as well as demand trends too. So, you know, I think markets and people are very efficient in servicing solutions to problems they have. And so I think you're always looking for new problems or some things that are on the edge of like pain points that haven't really been addressed yet. And it's really about when those customer changes and those user changes are also intersecting with the capability changes that something really special happens. It's usually both sides of the coin. When you left Apple, why did you want to go and kind of work with with startups, with founders, and more so like small teams? I think there's just something magic in starting a new thing. You get a little bit addicted to that. I think even personally for me at Apple at the time, the products were starting to plateau a little bit more where they were tended to be more evolutionary than revolutionary. And I, I maybe had that bug of just wanting to ship more fundamentally new things. I really looked for, looked to like scratch that edge in a startup context. I think there's just something really exciting about a small company. You can have a little bit more fun too out of a corporate concept. You can move a little bit faster. I think you can be more opinionated in your design and the voice and tone of a product. Um, and it's it doesn't have to be a mass-produced, one-size-fits-all uh, product yet um, when you're at that scale. And so it's just a really kind of exciting place to work. Small teams are great. I think you can really have outsized voice and impact from the team that you can see in the products and the, and the company. That's really fun. I just, I love the process of building companies alongside products as well, too. So when you're doing both those things at the same time, they're interdependent and, um, and it's just really exciting to do both. So I know you worked for a like a product studio and incubator. Why did you decide to go that route and work with, you know, maybe a variety of teams, different entrepreneurs instead of maybe launching your own product or becoming an entrepreneur yourself? The studio I worked with was called Fictive Kin. The people there were so amazing. So if you don't know the term fictive kin, those are people that are, you know, you call your family, but you're not related by blood. And that was really the, you know, the spirit of the spirit of the, and ethos of the group. So, you know, we had a just a really you know, special group of people and we did everything from brand design to UI UX and, and, and software development on the, the kind of mobile app and web app side of, side of things. Um, I think personal growth wise, the work that I had done at Apple was a little bit more on the kind of hardware and then embedded software side of things. And so I think just, you know, deeply understanding how this internet thing worked was even important at the time. So I figured that was going to be a thing. So wanted to, you know, spend a lot more time there. And so our model at that studio was a little bit special too. So in some ways we were doing client services, but the projects we did were with partners who 
um, we're really trying to start a new company or a new business. So many times we were going through the definition and development of a product, launching it with them, seeing how traction worked, and then would go spin that thing out into its own company, um, hire a sustaining team, and then retain some some equity in that company as well. So we were almost like a little startup studio um, in, in the studio as well, too. So we really were generating startups at the time. Some of those we founded ourselves. Um, there were a few products that we worked on that were actually internally developed that are that are kind of still running and, and their own things as well. So, um, so it was a little bit of a mixture of both. There's one app called To Do that's spelled T-E-U-X-D-E-U-X that we developed. It's a very simple To Do app um, that that kind of works in, a, in your browser on your phone. Really just trying to emulate a, a piece of paper, and that's still running after you know ten years. It's it's a really beautiful example of of a product that doesn't need to evolve all the time. I mean, there's always a few like light features and maintenance that are that are happening over time. That's when we did in partnership with a woman Tina Roth Eisenberg, who you might know as Swiss Miss from uh, the internet. A thing that literally came out of her holding up a piece of paper on her desk saying like. I wish I had a thing like this on my computer. Um, and we ended up like building that together with her. She designed the product and we've been kind of running it as its own thing for a while where we're both still involved. And so that was a purely internally developed product that, you know, has a great passionate user base and that hopefully will be around for another 10 years as well. But that was something that felt like a little bit more internal that, that we were able to manage on an ongoing basis. There were some other companies like we also developed this um, kind of uh, fan first music social network called Rushmore um, that was actually a partnership with Betaworks. Um, who were kind of partial investors in Fictive Kin um, that we would, you know, spin out companies and would help manage them uh, after the fact. So we designed and launched that product. We ended up go- like doing a CEO search and hired a guy, Alex Hunter, who was one of the um, early uh, Virgin America folks that launched the, the online presence for the, the airline uh, in the U.S. at the time. So we hired him onto the team, um, you know, uh, spinning it off into its own company. He hired a team and ran it for um, for a number of years after that too. So that was a kind of a, another model where it, it uh, spawned another independent organization that we didn't internally um, support over time, but we're still involved with. So a few a few different models depending on the depending on the company. In terms of the model, when you were building products, were you thinking as your approach, um, hey, this is going to be able to reach venture scale, also in terms of the amount of impact you could have with this product, or also building product that, hey, we're going to maybe have like a passionate small user base, but this is going to be for it? We did a little bit of both. I think some of our ideas were really big that we knew were candidates for venture scale businesses, and that was their design feature path from the very beginning. There were lots of things that we were excited about that we knew weren't venture scale businesses. And sometimes those light up our eyes too, because you know those aren't actually getting funded right now. Like there's this whole class of like non-venture scalable businesses that aren't getting financial resources behind them. And I think that's just amazing. What led you to joining Bolt? Yeah, so my first experience with Bolt, I actually spoke at a conference, a workshop that they organized like back in 2013 in New York, um, and really just stayed connected to the to the team over time. It was very clear that they knew their stuff in the hardware space. I mean, at the time, this is when everyone was was trying to launch Kickstarters and somehow magically planning to ship their products on time and pay everyone back with the money they the money they raised, which was like pretty broken with except for a couple standout cases. Like some people like Pebble did it really well. But it was really clear that Bolt understood how hard that was and had different models for um, investing in companies, what made a good hardware company. They always spoke with a with a high level of of knowledge and expertise. And I always kind of just appreciated that. And uh, yeah, I had the opportunity to to join um, back in 2017. um, And it was really just a, a place I was excited about building a community. We were really starting to scale the fund size and expand our investment focus um, a little bit. So just excited to join up with the fund at the time. How do you view just the market overall investing in hardware? Because it seems like there's not a ton of venture capital funds that actually do invest in, in hardware. 
if you look at our portfolio, we probably 50% of our companies have some physical product they're developing, like another 25% are, are actually more into like advanced manufacturing space. So maybe they're making equipment that makes other things. So there's some physical products. And then we have another probably quarter of the portfolio that has soft is just a software only um, product. So we really have a, a pretty wide mix. I think even for the um, the software products, it's, it, there's companies like um, Join that makes a uh, collaboration platform between general contractors, um, architects, and building owners, things like that, that oftentimes still have a, a footprint in the real world. But we also have some companies like Eternal that's making a immersive 3D environment um, that you can hang out with friends that actually sits at this like intersection of, of social and gaming. But they do 3D world generation that has almost some like CAD components to it. And they're, they're playing with some digital goods and, and kind of in the crypto space as well that, that are interesting. So our investment focus is pretty broad, but it touches on um, like we describe it as the intersection of the physical and digital worlds, which all those, I think all those things kind of check that box for us. So, um, so for us, hardware is so pervasive. So many companies are building with some element of hardware or, or just building some digital tool that interacts with, with something fundamental in the real world, that it, it's just, it's, it's truly a more, you know, generalist in some ways and, and, and touches on many parts of the economy. Um, for us, it's almost getting to the point of saying like, my company has a website or something, or my company has a mobile app, right? It's, it's like more and more companies are, are doing things that touch the physical world. How do you think about this notion of like design versus sustainability? And in terms of where you're like actually sourcing hardware materials and just how you think about overall design for the user experience? It's almost adorable. Like, right, we've been talking about environmentalism and sustainability for decades. I, like, I want to like treat a lot of those historic uh, conversations and efforts with a lot of respect. There's something different is happening right now with the general public consciousness and, and the demand from the consumer side right now. That demand is trickling into the ecosystem and impacting things in a number of ways. I think brands are really trying to appeal to that. You can see that in their marketing positioning. You can see that in the number of companies that are doing ESG reporting and, and taking that very, very seriously, not as a kind of a checkbox um, after thought um, and starting to see some stuff on the regulatory side as well too. Um, so there's really something happening right now and that's impacting products, that's impacting supply chain. So super exciting space in general. I think a big thing for me is that oftentimes sustainable solutions are more expensive. And so I think there's an aspect where we're going to start seeing those you know materials and processes apply to luxury goods. Um, and I think that will almost be in a luxury um, product class. Um, and so there's a little bit of that that's like, doesn't make me feel great. Um, if people are just, it's going to be coming from kind of a, like an overly braggy, egotistical place for luxury products, but it's a great business and there can be a flywheel, I think, to have a broader impact. So um, generally excited about that. The biggest kind of product design concept for me that I'm that I'm really excited about, I think, is for us to get into the mode of really embracing the sustainable processes and materials and, and really like let them look like sustainable products. I think we're still in this mode now of trying to use like post-consumer plastics, but make them look like they're not. And there's just something kind of inherently, you know, not dishonest, but just not optimized around that. And so I'm really excited for industrial design and, and product design to kind of push what our notion of a sustainable product is and looks like and, and what those experiences are and, and really kind of design that from scratch and as opposed to trying to make products that look like the old non-sustainable versions of things um, and just like magically do them invisibly in a more sustainable way. I think people are, you know, trying to do things that are well-intentioned and we're, we're almost just at the stage now of, of understanding some of the unintended consequences of, the, of those decisions too. So there's oftentimes non-obvious trade-offs where like, oh, I chose this sustainable material, but 
the energy impact to manufacture it is like much higher than I thought. And so we're just now getting to that, even that stage where we can truly get lifecycle analyses of the, of the decisions we're making and then roll that into, you know, the next generation of a thing. So that's going to be an iterative process that we're, you know, at the early stages of still. I almost get a little bit like frustrated sometimes when there's a lot of finger pointing right now too around people saying like, oh, they said that was sustainable, but look at all these reasons that it's not. And I think those conversations are totally valid and important, but it like shouldn't be from an accusatory place. Like we're only uncovering some of those things because people are trying and we should be like encouraging people to improve over time, but still keep trying too. So, uh, so we're still at that iterative self-critical phase. And I think we just have to appreciate that and embrace that and, and all encourage each other to get better as fast as possible, but without like screaming greenwashing all the time. Talk to me a little bit as well as your teardown library. Do you look back sometimes at like some of these old designs and get inspiration when you work on something new? For sure, absolutely. So I run this community organization called the Teardown Library. It's a, well, first and foremost, it's a group of people, but um, we maintain these archives of disassembled products. Um, we kind of have a, um, have a brand, quote unquote, branch in uh, San Francisco, Boston, and one coming soon in New York, um, and accepting applications for other cities if you want to host your own. But it sounds fancy, but it's really just keeping junk boxes around. <laughs> so it's a, it's a lot less glamorous than it sounds. Um, but basically, every product designer I know takes apart old products to get ideas um, around how things have been done in the past to not always reinvent the wheel. So everyone's got these boxes around the of products they've taken apart or, or they have junk drawers of stuff that maybe they're going to take apart or repair themselves. So I just wanted to get all those that stuff together because we only need a couple of copies of all those things and uh, really create a community space for people to come gather, like pull those things out of an archive, maybe interact with each other, ask questions, maybe take some products apart themselves because you can learn so much from historic products in, in really surprising ways. So And, and it's just fun. So that's a uh, just a community I've been working on um, just over the last year, um, which which has been really exciting. But I think that is especially applicable for design for sustainability because there is this inherent unknowability of how your design, um, you know, will ultimately be sustainable or not, or what the full carbon footprint of your product is. Because when you're designing, you maybe haven't totally understood the supply chain or picked the vendors or, or seen all the implications of end of life. And so you're kind of guessing with some best practices in mind or rules of thumb in mind. Um, but oftentimes the actual accurate tool you can you can use is to go back and look at a previous product. Because once something is in production, you can do very accurate lifecycle analyses of the product and just understand from the context of the previous generation thing, what some of the top hitters were, what some of the opportunities to improve uh, kind of where the low-hanging fruit are um, with the next generation product design. So there's kind of this Janus head, like looking forward, looking backward thing happening. That That's really, I think, where you can be the most productive in design for sustainability. Um, and I think where we're you know, doing teardowns and, and understanding kind of the state of the art of the industry can be really valuable. What are some uh, trends that you're currently very excited about? There's, yeah, so many. Um, Gen Z, everyone's talking about it, the kids these days. Like, there's so much there and there's there's so many, like, yeah, cringy uh, analyst reports you can read about that. Um, so much exciting stuff happening with the, um, you know, people investing, like, users building um, online communities that are not, that are, you know, um, attitudinally defined, not geographically defined, really operating with with um, small crews of friend families are super interesting. Um, the line between what an enterprise thing and what a consumer thing is totally dissolving. Um, and that's, and the businesses there are super interesting. There's 
um, a company's uh, heroes jobs that we're that we've invested in that um, is, does short form video um, uh, style job applications and, and uh, so hiring managers can post can post job recs that way applicants can apply that way and it's really you know consumer content trends that are trickling back into the enterprise space for for people that never want to touch LinkedIn um, stuff like that are are super super um, interesting right now um, and and there's so many implications um, uh, with professional and consumer tools that are super super exciting um, we talked about sustainability that's like another big one where you know seeing that um you know transform uh the supply chain and, and you know consumer products in a number of different ways on the board of this company blue lake packaging that is doing plant-based sustainable uh, packaging solutions for for the big brands of the world that are they're interested in doing that that i'm really excited about um, i think that's a really cool space and then also like recently i think all of the conversations around decentralized computing right now um, are, are, su- are super interesting as well i think um, so much is focused on cryptocurrency and decentralized finance um, right now but everything that's happening beyond that around like truly decentralized applications and the whole kind of uh, application layer of, of the types of different products and, and markets that can be built on that underlying technology um, are, are super super interesting as well too like we've been in this mode of developing the underlying technology for 10-ish years now um, and we're really at the stage where the technology is going to start reaching out with the, into the real world too so that interface of that digital world and the physical world is, is really really um, exciting personally right now Especially in hardware, um, when you're doing due diligence, at what point do you typically get involved? Is there a prototype? Um, has the entrepreneur figured out the supply chain? Or just like in order to be get bolt and you interested, what needs to happen? My core answers are really just bread and butter VC answers too. I mean, I think there's, you know, there's like the Rand Paul quote of don't try to be original, just try to be good. Like that's like a little bit of that. Like it's all about team market opportunity. Like that, that's really the, the biggest thing. It's not, we don't really start with the question of like how much risk is there and will this work? It's more about like, if it does work, how big of an opportunity is it going to be? Right. And then, and then how special is this team with their, you know, founder market fit and how likely are they to succeed in the space? I mean, that's, that's really where we start. I think after that, you get into the details of like, is this, um, is this technology really ready to go? Like we, we definitely like to um, invest in more development than research. Like we, like if any, if anyone's just uh, like answering questions with core technology, that's usually not where, where we like to invest. It's really about how a technology that's mature and ready to go is getting applied to a new market. Um, I think that's really important for us. The other maybe slightly non-standard one is the interdisciplinary nature of, of the founders and the, the team as well. Like we talked about that a little bit at the beginning, but we really like to see um, kind of those like non-obvious threads from somebody's background, whether it was the you know experience from a market they had previously or a hobby they had that um, has now all of a sudden like given them the insight into a market or a solution. Um, we really like to see that, and I think a lot of it's a common thread with many of our founders that they have very like non-obvious um, interdisciplinary backgrounds. That was really the spark of the idea and the origin story for the company that they were developing. So that's something we we pattern match on as well. What is one thing you would change when it came to venture capital? VCs don't always have a great reputation because we can tend to be very transactional. And so I think the biggest thing for VCs for me is, is just to be, I think, culturally more human. Um, and <laughs> I think just I mean, probably just have a little bit more fun um, and, and appreciate. I think we're trying to build a, a world that we're all proud of and, and just to interact as a, at a more empathetic human level with the founders that we're working with. I think that's something I'm always trying to push myself towards. And, you know, I think in, in general, we do a pretty good job but we could always get better and that's just that's a really important axis to push and i think keep improving on what is one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally 
Professionally, I really like like Toyota Production System. I think it's a really interesting book that kind of talks about how mass production systems uh, for the automotive space in the U.S. Um, influence some of the the systems in Japan. And I, I originally like kind of had a impression of that story in that book that was going to be about how to mass produce things. And it's really not about high volume manufacturing. It's actually about efficient manufacturing and, and minimizing waste, um, which I think has a lot of um, has a lot of uh, just context and the design for sustainability uh, conversation happening right now, too. So there's just some, some really interesting like threads there that are especially relevant that I've, I've just found um, maybe like recently um, professionally inspiring. It's still an old view of the world. And so I think there's a little bit more of a like abundant mindset maximalist um, take on that, that, um, that I think is maybe a little bit more of a modern interpretation of, of some of that ethos. But but I think like those things need to combine um, and I think can in an interesting way. Personally, I mean, I love science fiction, like um, William Gibson, like Neuromancer is like, I definitely am a, um, a little bit of a cyberpunk at heart. So, um, so those, I love those books. I love the world. He's definitely one of my favorite authors. So that's a pretty like, I don't know, standard nerdy answer, but that's true. It's great. No one has mentioned these books yet on the show, so I'm excited to add it to our book list. That's excellent. My final question to you is, what's one piece of advice that you have for founders? I think be in it for the passion is the biggest thing. Like, If you're in it for the money, you usually don't get there. Um, and if you're really doing the thing you're doing because you're excited about the impact it's going to have in people's lives and the world around you, that's going to get you through all the hard times. That's going to be accretive to um, motivating your teams and your customers. Um, and so I think really like making sure you like find that fire and invest in that fire and don't let the like hard times dampen that. I think that's, that's really the, the lifeblood of just you as a human and, and your company. I love that answer. That's awesome. Tyler, this has been so much fun. Thank you again so much for your time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. I love this. And there you have it. It was so much fun chatting with Tyler. You can follow him on Twitter at T Mincy. I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at Consumer VC. Thanks for listening, everyone. 